0: The
1: Mud Puppy Games Network. Network.
2: Network. Network. Hi, Tim Kask here. Facing a TV game and don't know what to do? Well, you might if you had listened to Save for Half. <laughs>
0: Welcome to the Save for Path Podcast, where we'll talk about old school games and modern games inspired by them.
2: What you do, everybody? It's Save for Half, and we're here to talk about Advanced Dungeons & Dragons' Manual of the Planes! What I recently thought was the last hardback published for 1E, but I was wrong. It was the next to last. It's, uh, Greyhawk Adventures was actually the last. Kind of surprising. But anyway, since we're talking about the various planes of existence... I've decided to introduce everybody as Other Planes of Existence Sports Teams. Because how could that idea go wrong? <laughs> how indeed. And I am DM Mike, known as the plane of Nirvana's team spirit. Eh? Eh?
0: Yay. Uh, is this where we're supposed to ask how you smell or something? <laughs>
1: I, I is that, that Axe Spray?
2: Was... <laughs> 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 yes, it is. And that was DM Liz as the Element of Water's Giant Elemental Weasels!
0: Woo!
2: (laughs) Not just weasels, not just giant weasels. Giant Elemental Weasels.
0: Water weasels, winning weasels, score, score, score!
2: Yay! DM Corbett with the Plane of Gladsheim Great Axes! Because he's great! (laughs) (laughs)
1: and i'm sugar-coated hey hey corporate are you from glad time are you just glad to see me (laughs) no it's an axe
2: (laughs) a great axe why do i picture like a breakfast cereal with all the marshmallows shaped like little axes
3: because every kid wants an axe in their mouth
2: (laughs) (laughs) and finally dm jim the plane of concordance oppositions opposition
1: are you trying to say I'm a serial, <laughs> serial contrarian? Yeah.
2: Maybe. And so, A D D, Our first book is nearly the last, if you don't count Greyhawk Adventures. But
3: nobody does.
2: <laughs> Ouch! Wow, that's harsh. Anyway, before we get to that, do we have any announcements? I think we do. Yes. Um, <laughs> we
1: listeners... were just talking about it right <laughs> oh, we <started> right. recording. <laughs>
3: Sorry, it's been a long time ago when we talked about that. That was like four (laughs) minutes ago.
2: Minutes and minutes ago. (laughs) Well, you know, most time is consistent in the various planes, but there are some planes where it goes a lot slower. So (laughs) anyway, listeners, if you don't mind, let's take a moment. Sit down. Are you comfortable? Good. Because the four of us have something we need to tell you. Now, we all love you very much and you all mean the world to us, and nothing is ever going to change that, okay? We've had to make a decision.
1: This sure sounds like a breakup speech,
0: coming. Yeah, and and, and some of you are just going to have to go.
1: (laughs) We can only keep half of the
2: fans. Guys, you're messing up my chi, okay? (laughs) Sorry. Okay, go back to it. Be serious. That's right, kids. We're going to have to go to Patreon. Yeah, yeah. Like virtually every other podcast, we've decided to take the Patreon plunge. Now, we're not going to be the type that constantly brings it up and nags and whines and cajoles and pleads. As much as we love doing this, there are some costs that we've had to pocket that just we're reaching a point we really can't anymore. It's domain names, it's feed costs, it's Corbett's balloon animal habit. It is extensive. Yeah, yeah. Your
1: broken headset that was driving me insane.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As some of you who, who listened to the Rocky and Bullwinkle episode might remember. And it, it's just reached a point to where we're going to need a little money. Not a lot. And we've got some rewards set up for you guys. But, you know, we're not going to monetize the podcast. We just, if you can spare a few bucks every few episodes, we're gonna we're going to do it per episode, not per month. So you would only assist if we kept putting out product. But I hope you understand. It's a decision that it took us a long time to come to. We're not proud of it, but there it is.
3: I knew it had to happen. Yeah. Of course, my question is, do me and Jim have to go with Liz for six months and then with you for six months? Or do we just do an immediate split and meet each other later at a summer camp and figure out a concocted idea no, to no, get you no. back together? No, a-
2: no, Every a week it... Two weekends a month, you know, you'll, you'll <laughs> stay with me. The rest of the time, you'll stay with Liz, because, well, I know she's your favorite, so you know, I understand. And
0: besides, if each of us took one of you, you'd just switch places with one another and try to trick us into getting back together.
1: Yeah, it's true. Am I slow? I don't cool. even understand what we're talking about now. <laughs> I thought I caffeined up properly for this, apparently not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it suddenly turned into a goofy Disney movie with Patty Duke. Freaky Friday, (laughs) yeah.
2: (laughs) Speaking of transporting to weird places you never expected to, let's take a podcast break, and then we'll come back for... The Manual of the Planes, first edition.
1: Now, it's here. The excitement, the adventure of a new force at breakfast. We'll call them C-3PO's.
0: New C-3PO cereal from Kellogg's. Twin rings, phased together. For two crunches and every double O. A delicious part of this
2: nutritious breakfast. Now you can experience the taste of Kellogg's C-3PO's.
1: A crunchy new force at breakfast. May the force be with you.
0: Mad balls, mad balls. Gross for
1: one, gross for all. We play with a mad ball. They're gross. Funny, yucky. Cat. There's eight. <laughs> eight <laughs> Hold For eight more mad balls. Snake bait. Freaky fullback, Splitting
0: headache. Locklets. Swine sucker. bruise brother. Woof breath. Fix face.
1: <laughs> we play with a mad, mad ball. We play with a mad ball. <laughs> mad ball. <Mad> <laughs> Now, eight great
0: mad ball, are joined by a great boars sold separately Woo! from toys. All right, I'll give it a try. No! Try not! Do! Or oh, do not! There is no try.
1: Okay, I don't think there's really a point for Mike and the Mechanics, so we'll <laughs> just go right into top five. Well, I mean, it's only a 128 page book, so Mike and the Mechanics would be the whole th- podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Let me explain how to play Dungeons and Dragons. You know, <laughs> you know. No, no.
3: The save for half. Top five.
1: In five, four, three, two. Ah!
2: Top five. Here we are. AD&D, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. And if you need me to explain the mechanics of AD&D, you need another podcast.
3: It's just like Monopoly, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Just like Monopoly. (laughs) Except with (laughs) So, So could somebody tell me why the race car moves only as fast as a terrier dog or a top hat? That doesn't make sense. Because
3: they're the fastest terrier dog in Top Hat you've ever seen, Mike.
2: It have to be, because it doesn't make sense. Just house why ruled. does a dog have to pay to stay at a hotel?
0: House rule it, Mike. Jeez, that's what everyone wow. else does. Marty well, did with the fifty
2: cal machine gun mounts <laughs> on the yep. hotels.
3: Jim, you seriously did not caffeine up enough, because I don't think I did either.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Okay, first impressions. Since it was your choice... DM Jim.
1: This book, when it originally came out in 1987, I could not have been more excited about. We didn't know at the time that this was the Twilight, of first edition AD&D, and we were young enough that we just bought everything they published, Oriental Adventures. I don't know how we missed Greyhawk Adventures, and we didn't get to that one. So uh, when this book came out, I mean, my brother's original campaign, we'd already been to the Plains. He based it on uh, Robert Asprin's Another Fine Myth before any of us had read the book. So we had a D-hopper at like fourth level. <laughs> unbeknownst to me, there wasn't going to be a lot in this book that uh, we hadn't already worked out for ourselves. But we were super excited. And I thought this was going to be my favorite AD&D book ever uh, upon uh, initial purchase. We were racing to the store to get this one. And? We had worked it mostly out. It was, uh, it was a little disappointing. And I, as an older semi-historical research player, I understand why. And we'll, we'll talk about that now. But it, it was a little super skinny and... um. I guess we thought when we saw the cover with Jeff Easley's monster on the front, we thought it was going to be a, a you know half the book was going to be inner and outer planes, a monster manual, and uh, it was different than that. So the, the the first impression back in the day was we all bought it, we were all super excited about it, and then I don't think we ever actually used anything in it. It just sat there proudly on the shelf with all our other AD&D 1e core books.
2: Okay, Corbett
3: honestly really similar i went out and bought it because i was i was actually thinking okay unearth arcana was awesome had a whole bunch of stuff in it i don't know if i'll use it all but it was great so i'm gonna pick it up and i picked it up and i figured it's gonna be all about kind of like jim was saying i was thinking it's gonna be full of monsters from all over the place a monster manual of the planes or or a combination of here's a you know here's a d hopper type class because i i read a lot of robert esprin stuff and it was fun didn't we all <laughs> the the amber series was another good one that's kind of like that too and I, the thing was yeah i didn't have it was missing a lot of the stuff i was expecting so I, I guess initial purchase was yes and afterwards was this looks good on the shelf like
2: the, the bookenders of my my ad books okay liz
0: i never purchased or had purchased for me to the manual of the planes back in the day. So I never really looked closely at it until many, many years later, after we got married, Mike, um, <laughs> and sort of flipped through it. But I got to say, at the time, kid me probably would have had very little interest in that book. I never picked that up. I never picked up Oriental Adventures. I never picked up Greyhawk Adventures. A lot of those first edition um, later books Just never really spoke to me. I remember being very interested in the Wilderness Survival Guide when I read about it in, say, Dragon Magazine. But again, for whatever reason, either because the stores my parents were going to didn't have it or whatever, I never actually got that one either as a kid. So I don't really have a first impression of Manual of the Plains except looking at it now as an adult. And Still not terribly interested in the concept. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It just seems really crunchy. And now that I've read through it for the show, it really is very crunchy. So I guess my first impression in that regard was correct.
2: (laughs) Okay, well, I got to admit, until I started actually collecting, like in the mid to late 90s, From the survival guides on, I never bought any of those hardbacks. I photocopied some stuff about the Blood Sea Minotaurs out of Dragonlance to use as an optional class or race in my campaign world, but none of them really grabbed me. And as far as Manual of the Planes, it originally struck me as, this would be great if any of my campaigns or any of the campaigns I played in got to 20th odd level. But they never did. They always tended to shut down around 12th to 15th, and this seemed to be a bit heavy for those levels. I had done some dimensional stuff, but only through modules like Castle Amber X2, with the Gates to Averroin, or Queen of the Demon Web Pits. So, you know, I didn't do that. And looking at it today, I'm kind of regretting I didn't get it back then, a friend of mine had it, my Caskins. He had bought a copy of it, but I remember seeing it and always thinking, maybe I ought to look through that sometime, but I never did. And now that I have, yeah, it's really crunchy. Reading through it, I got the impression that it can't decide whether it wants to be a reference work or a tour guide manual. Because there are some sections that it just like screams like it wants to have sections of fiction, you know, almost where they want to talk about how, what it's like to travel in a general place, which I think might have actually spruced it up a bit.
3: I, I do have a note that says uh, Magic User's Vacation Guidebook. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. find that funny. Yeah. <laughs> you,
3: came, you came to the same conclusion, kind of.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially like name level plus. I will say that I noticed peppered throughout the book. There are new rules for combat and magic. There's combat magic rules for every of the planes, they every plane they talk about, that things work differently. But a uniform pattern I, tended, I thought I saw throughout was an attempt to make demon princes, archdevils, demigods, and gods harder to kill. And for that, I... I can't but salute. I always got irritated going to cons and stuff, meeting people. It's like, oh yeah, my character's, he killed the entire Polynesian mythos. They were such wimps. Really? Well,
1: right, which should be nigh impossible or extremely difficult on the prime material plane, but there's no way you're going to Asgard and pulling that. Right. So, yeah, that,
2: I can salute them for that. Part of me feels a little uncomfortable though, because we know now that this book came out two years before 2nd Edition hit, and 2nd Edition had been started to be written in 86. So part of me wonders if this was just a filler book to earn some cash before the game reset, you know what I mean? I hope that's not the case. I'm sure that Jeff Grubb wasn't thinking that, but this was you know, Lorraine Williams' TSR, so... And much as I like Gary, let's face it, Unearthed Arcana and Oriental Adventures were cash grabs. So, oh, oh,
1: you went straight for it. it's an artless cash grab for babies. <laughs> I wouldn't even do that. Ouch. <laughs> so before I. I that was I... Redbox, man. <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? Nobody. nobody. Absolutely nobody ever <laughs> said that, and especially not me. OK,
2: well, then. Let's go right into the top five, and we'll start with Jim again.
1: <laughs> okay, well, I put on my little junior John Peterson fan club shoes and went off to the side for this podcast and talked to Steve Marsh, because what conflicts me about the book is written is that it was primarily put together by Jeff Grubb. Let's just get that out of the way. Written by Jeff Grubb, 128-page hardcover, cover art by Jeff Easley, interior art, mostly Steve and Fabian and a little Jeff Easley, and the cartography by uh, david s sutherland i am a jeff grubb fan i've adored almost everything he's ever written except not this so much and so that this podcast wouldn't just be well let's all slam on what a terrible job jeff grubb did on this particular book i talked to steve marsh he's such a nice guy and uh steve filled in a bunch of blanks and i wanted to confirm my recollections of what he had shared with us in that earlier interview which was that uh he and uh Gary, both separately and then eventually together, had been working on a version of this book while Gary uh, Gax was still with the company. The the skinny on this is that when Lorraine uh, took over, Steve Marsh was an eyewitness to her literally burning their manuscript. I'm like, literally burning it? Yes, I saw the fire. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's gone. It's a lost manuscript. But Steve hipped me to some cool stuff like his initial individual version called mist world that he worked on with a guy named Andrew Swenson and brought to Gary, the outline for his and Gary's book is still extant. And he gave me that. So then, then what happened is exactly what you said. And one of Lorraine's first edicts is let's do second edition and get all the devils and angels out of it and clean it up. And you know, her usual disdain for all things gamers, let's straighten it up because
2: gamers are weirdos.
1: unlike. But Google in the meantime, we got to put some books out here. Jeff Grubb, you're writing this, and you've got six weeks to kick it out the door. So Jeff wrote this under tiny budget and way short deadlines at her direction. In that context, he did a fabulous job because there's all kinds of little golden nuggets in this. That he, it's it's more like the gazetteers we used to review. You know, there's a there's a lot of little things in this you could implement and steal and use. And it's not really Jeff's fault.
2: <laughs>
1: that's that's my number well, five. It's not I, Jeff's
2: fault. <laughs> okay. Well, and as a side note, I think he said the acknowledgement that he used a lot of the stuff on the Divas and the Astral Plane from Roger Moore's articles from Dragon. So
1: credit where credit's due department. But But it's for sure he didn't steal anything from Gary's manuscript because that was Ashes. (laughs) That was Ashes.
2: God, what a creep. Anyway. Okay, Corbett.
3: That does seem pretty rough interesting though
2: that's what i mean lorraine williams is like better much honest yeah that's jeez. <laughs> 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 that
3: explains a lot though uh, but yeah i have a lot of beefs on this I, i'm guessing everybody does i this is more of a um philosophical complaint i guess or thought uh, in the way that it was set up that you travel you have to physically travel from one plane to another plane like you have to physically be traveling to it, and I f- I find that a little weird. It seems like you should just be you popping the right ethereal
2: there, but... or the astral yeah. planes.
3: Yeah, you should. You should just be able to kind of be there. I, well, I, I kind of had to rationalize it in my head by thinking back to like the old Greek story of uh, Orpheus traveling to the underworld to get his girlfriend Eurydice. Uh, Eurydice, Eur- right?
1: I, eh. I've Here's always girlfriend. said Eurydice, but what do I know? You're a dice too, buddy. <laughs> you're a polyhedron <laughs> no no you look like a half elf and smell like one too. Two. <laughs>
2: <laughs> which is like but, what? cinnamon I, I don't
1: but but the
3: story of that where he has to go go into the underworld make a deal and then she follows him out and he loses her on the way so that that's important to show that story in the traveling but once you've done that, once you've essentially been to the Underworld, you kind of know that process, so it becomes just a taxi service from one to the other, whether you're teleporting, walking, or anything. And it feels like a lot of the travel in the book doesn't need to happen. But I, I could just be complaining there.
2: I, I wonder if they were trying to mimic the wilderness travel aspects of D&D to go to and from dungeon or ruin castle or village or whatever. So they were trying to just grafted onto planar travel
1: you'd all we'd all agree that it was definitely an attempt to turn planar travel into a hex crawl. Yes. Yeah. Now, however successful or to whatever degree.
3: Well personally, and this is a Jeff Grubb uh check mark or a uh, he was he was responsible for um spelljammer, which I think is a much better idea. If you're gonna physically be traveling it should it should have a poetic verse to it. You know, kind of a we're we're on the high seas of the stars.
2: Yar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Spelljammer. Yeah. That's cool.
3: I get the reasoning. I get the understanding and the rationale of we need to physically be moving to have this movement happen. And I don't think it should be that way. I think it should just be poof and you're there.
2: Yeah. That has been the traditional treatment of dimensional travel, I think, has been mm. the gate or item and poof, you're there. So, yeah. No, I, I I can certainly see your point and agree with it to a certain extent. I've always. Thought of dimensional travel that way.
3: Well, I wonder if Spelljammer was his ch- attempt to try to fix what was done. It doesn't matter. Go ahead, next person. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, Liz. I've, I've I've got a number that addresses the sole aspect of what you just said. So, I'll uh, okay, cool. Something to look forward to. Okay, Liz.
0: Okay, so I guess for my number five, I'd like to talk about the concept of the ethereal plane as the stuff of creation itself, as opposed to just, well, it's ethereal and you get you become ethereal and you can walk through solid objects and then there's these creatures that live on that plane, blah, blah, blah. But I did like the concept that things can be created from what the ethereal plane is made of. It's almost like a planar version of the primordial soup that life on Earth came from or the expanding ball of gas that eventually formed our universe. The ethereal plane is the magical, I guess, equivalent of that. You get the impression, at least, that's one I got, that most, if not all, of the other planes of existence probably eventually first came from the ethereal plane. So I thought that was a really fascinating look at the ethereal plane and you know, made it more than just a way to avoid getting hit by solid objects.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I will play off that for my five, in that I like how I assume Jeff Grubb or whoever came up with the idea of the ethereal realm being the border ethereal and the deep ethereal, in that it rationalized how there are certain D&D monsters who can go ethereal or are ethereal, but still are close enough to affect the prime material plane, and thus they're in the border ethereal, which they kind of suggested was like the beach, and the deep ethereal is the ocean itself. I liked that uh, analogy, the way they put that together.
1: With the little illustration that shows the different areas stacked like
2: Lego blocks. Now, personally, the... I, I, reading through all this, my thoughts were, what is up with all the frickin' demiplanes and paraplanes and nanoplanes and what the hell? But that's me. Bah! So that's my five. Jim, four.
1: My number four, I'm going to rock back and forth between great things and, and bitching about this book, uh, is the Jeff Easley cover. Here's your Spelljammer connection. The monster on the cover, one of the problems with the book is called an an ethereal dreadnought. And it gets a mention in the book, but no stats and it's not on any of the encounter tables. But they fixed that later by making the ethereal dreadnought, the astral dreadnought, and put it into uh Planescape. Okay. Spelljammer, sorry. One mm-hmm. of those. I'm I'm
2: I actually I think you were right the first time. I think it was Planescape.
1: Planescape, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in the like second edition and in- 4th edition versions of this book or 3rd edition, I'm sorry, 3rd and 4th edition. They didn't do a second edition cuz too many angels and devils. They finally gave you stats for this monster with a slight renaming and it, and it was completely as badass the eventual stats in Planescape were as badass as Jeff Easley's first edition cover painting indicate because the first thing that thing goes for in an Astral Plane is to chomp your silver cord. So it's, you know, don't don't you see one of those coming, you need to, you need to exit the other way quickly, stage left.
0: Yeah, Mike and I were kind of laughing about that earlier it's like yes here is a cool looking monster that we will not talk about at all in this book (laughs) you're
1: right right right
0: (laughs) you're welcome
2: here's an awesome monster that we're not going to tell you about
1: (laughs) but i mean can you imagine if that painting still existed somewhere 10 grand wouldn't get it for you Mm
2: -hmm. yeah
3: Uh, oh it's
1: great cover art Mm -hmm. i will admit almost all the cover art on all of the the
3: second printing of the first edition were just great but eh, what you yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, as purely quality art, Easley and Elmore art is is incredible. But I always still have that nostalgia in my heart for the old Sutherland and mm. and Trampier work. But, gee, why would they want to rush to get all those devils and Freedys <laughs> off the, off the <laughs> covers of the AD&D books?
1: I can't imagine why. Have you seen pictures of Jeff Easley from back then? Like when he was doing this work? I mean, his his hair and his beard were jet black. Mm. So so maybe, you know, white hair is the cost of working for Lorraine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay,
1: well. That was uh, funny in my head, sorry. Al <laughs> well, Corbett, you're four?
2: Uh,
3: you mentioned this earlier. Time stays constant in the prime material plane. So if you're in a, one prime material plane and go to another prime material plane, it should stay constant. So if you spend a week in one, you have lost a week in the other because time keeps marching forward. You go into other planes of existence and... Uh, time changes because there's a dilation period between which one you go to. And I will admit this becomes a bit nauseating for me because it's very uh gold exchange rate kind of thing. <laughs> but that's that's beside the point. That's not My actual point is, okay, so when those kids went into the cabinet and wound up in Narnia and then came back and no time passed, were they then on
2: another plane that wasn't a prime material plane? Well... I seem to recall there in the book, they did say certain gates, permanent gates were to go directly from A to B. So maybe that's what the wardrobe was. Maybe.
3: I'm I'm, I'm cool with it. I'm just like trying to think through. like,
2: Yeah. Because
3: that would have been out long before this book would have come out. So it's not like it came out in the 80s. It came out in the 60s, if I remember right.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I got a, something I may or may not be mentioning in that regard which it will be the mandatory Doctor Who reference later on.
3: Oh, of course. Got to do that. <laughs> <laughs> what? Talk about planes of existence and not mention Doctor, Doctor Who? Doctor Who? I don't think
2: so. <laughs> madness, Mike. You're speaking madness.
3: But they were on a prime material. I felt like they were on a prime material plane. And oh, sure. yeah. That I can see no the thing. gate thing now that you're saying it, though.
2: Yeah. Maybe the wardrobe was just a gate with very specific requirements to open. I am um, just
3: trying to rationalize it, all right?
2: Anyway. Of oh, course, so I can't think of that un- without thinking of that young ones episode where Vivian went through the wardrobe and, <laughs> and that was that was weird. Anyway, okay. Four, Liz.
0: All right, number 4. Uh okay. I guess here's one where I'm going to bitch a little. The plane of concordant opposition, it seems like it's a handy catch-all that is whatever the DM wants it to be at any given time and it does not have to maintain the same rules and appearance. So, every single time you wind up going there, it can be totally different from the last time you were there. And that just kind of smacks like a big cheat to me. <laughs> 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 you can just make this whatever you want. And you don't Whenever even have to remember, want. right? And you don't even have to k- take notes as to how you had it the last time. You can just make it whatever you want the next time.
1: So it makes life easier for the DM and more difficult for the players and your problem again is what?
0: It's cheating.
2: Cuz she <laughs> tends to be a player. So, yeah. Is that a ba?
0: Worthy? That that's a ba. That is a ba. That, that is a ba. It's bah. cheating. It's lazy. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're going to have a plane do something, it should stay that way.
3: That's a liz ba. That's like twice the normal power of a regular ba.
1: It is. A <laughs> She caught a buy in earlier than Mike. That's impressive.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: But well, it's your turn, Mike, so yeah, step up. Where's your ba? Actually, bar?
2: I'm talking good here. If I have a favorite part of this, it's the discussion of prime elemental planes. I don't agree with 100% on each one, the Earth, air, fire, and water, but I think there's a lot of good data there that a GM could mine for their D&D game, or indeed, most any game. I got some ideas for Victorious looking at this stuff. So since the campaign I run tends to be elemental heavy when it comes to magic, so it had some good stuff. I've I've got to... And besides, giant elemental weasels. I mean, how can you go wrong when you have (laughs) giant elemental weasels in your water world? I mean, really.
0: You you, you seem to be fixating on the weasels, Mike.
2: Because there weren't badgers.
0: You could have made them badgers.
2: Well, i I'm, I'm very well might. He doesn't need any stinking badgers, Liz.
0: <laughs> badgers? <laughs> I don't.
2: But they're giant elemental badgers. They are the quintessence of the element of badger.
0: Badger, 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 badger,
1: badger. Mushroom, mushroom. Well, I, I actually agree with you, Mike. And can I name check a cohort? Sure. I, without asking, I know who absolutely bought this book when it came out and read it cover to cover was uh, Casey Christofferson, because I can see where when he wrote City of Brass, he was riffing off of stuff that's in this book.
2: Good for him, which is a product I need to get sometime. (laughs) okay. three, Jim.
1: My number three is on the astral plane. You need to know your color pools because there's a system in there. And it's one of the gems that is in the book uh, of every. The astral plane is how you can either get to the higher planes, or much more excitingly for me as a player and a GM, alternate prime material planes. So, we're in the back of the player's handbook, in the back of the DMG. Gary alluded to alternate prime material planes could be other game systems like Boot Hill and Gamma World. Jeff Grubb codified that in this book. And even gives you a little table of them, so uh, the player, as a player, you wouldn't know. You have to go trial and error it. But
2: right, yeah, he gives you some tables to roll on to see what the magic level is and various re- rules of reality. It's pretty cool.
1: I hate to endlessly brag on my little brother, but I mean, he had a system that he worked out years before this book came out. But it, it doesn't make what's in the book any less great. Mm-hmm. You're going to go alternate material plane hopping. You. Don't know if the world you land in has Leyland or support spells till you get there. Can all animals fly? Can inanimate objects move?
2: Does magic work? Does science work? Is it hap- Is both somewhat unreliable? You know, all sorts of good stuff.
1: Okay. Plus, I've seen your wife play through B1, Bad Mike's B1, and anywhere there's different colored pools, she's going. <laughs> so I'll have company. If, if Gage doesn't get there first. Yeah, right, right. <laughs>
0: Man, even I was not as reckless (laughs) as Gage was. And he
2: became a god. Oh, Oh, he had to die first, but, you know. Don't
0: you always?
1: Don't you always. That's right. What a good player.
0: What's he, 13?
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry. Gage came up in conversation between me and Tim yesterday because I was bragging on how he played in my Mega Heroes playtest because that little super genius not only understood the math of my game mechanics at a glance he figured out how to do a bunch of dumb stuff as a superhero pile up all these reputation penalties and then he came within a gnat's wing of teaming up with the supervillain at the boss fight so that those points would flip and he could spend them he was going to do it and i was going to allow him to do it and the adults at the table talked him out of the tree and i was so Uh, disappointed
2: 20, (laughs) 20 odd years from now gage is going to be the the gamer guest at cons. You wait and see. <laughs> I I make that prediction.
1: Nobody you're listening to this knows us. who knows who we're talking about. It's Glenn Howstrom's grandson and he's yeah. he's thirteen. He's already a two-fisted RPG.
2: Oh yeah. I'd say he's better than I was at that age.
1: Certainly more
2: tactical. But anyway, speaking of tactical, Corbett.
3: <laughs> because you're that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well you're such a war game gearhead, you know. I just
3: I just, know. Actually, uh, I was going to talk on the... There was a neat thing. I They danced around, and I don't know if they were trying to play with the idea that they ever quite caught on to it, but they were doing... Actually, they were, they were kind of copying Jim before Jim started copying other people, copying him. <laughs> From what I've understood about him talking about his superhero game, it sounds like he's grouped things in power level or power abilities, so it's the type of power as opposed to... Well, like a lot of the older games where it's like, you know, ice blast, fire blast, it's just blast, which well, kind of came out pretty right? You know, yeah. back in
1: the day, too. I mean, what you're talking about is a, a modular power set structure that I lifted straight from City of Heroes and more. So okay. it's okay. not like I made it up.
3: No, no, I know, I know you kind of, I mean, I, we're always pulling something from somewhere.
1: Well, everybody is. You know. But,
3: but they're talking about different uh, types of magical items and spells and they're describing like oh this is a summoning spell so this is going to work this way and this is a a conjuration spell so it's going to work this way and they they break them down into categories of what type of magic it is so you can figure out how it's going to affect that plane or that where where you're at
2: i don't entirely remember that was that kind of like the proto schools that they would end up doing in tui
1: it took Gary's system and and Jeff Grubb worked it out actually quite logically what would work and what wouldn't work. So, right. uh, abjuration over fifth or fourth or fifth level, your cleric and magic users out of luck. Summoning spells work just fine. Divination, nope, not on the planes.
3: Well, that's the thing though. He broke down the spells. I, I think they were like on the cusp of, hey, you know, would be better instead of this gigantic spell book. It was just these type of spells and then you've branched off from there. And they didn't do that, but. It's like so close. I could almost taste them, kind of leading you that way, and well, it didn't. Only happen. two years away. Yeah, yeah. It was just neat. Okay, it was a neat thing. It was there.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, different spells did different things on different planes. So you know, they had to have sections for each of those, at least the major planes.
3: I think it was their way of also kind of simplifying a little bit too, because with so many spells, you'd have to do every single spell and how it does on every single plane. That'd be crazy.
1: I mean, that would have been three inches thick, but what they give you are the little nuggets that are great, like your vanish spell uh, doesn't work on the ethereal plane because it just teleports the guy to exactly where he is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. Okay. Liz?
0: I'm going to kind of riff off a little of what Jim was saying about the astral plane, the color pools, etc. I found I found the astral plane to be one of the more interesting parts of the book, in my opinion, as well as the descriptions of the outer planes, um and primarily I think it's for me it's because they don't get as bogged down in crunchy stats as some of the other planar descriptions do. I found the astral plane really fascinating, despite the phrase the astral is little more than a plane of transit, a means of moving between the inner and outer planes. And then he goes into so much detail about all the different stuff that's there. That was one of the more interesting reads to me of the various planes was the astral. I think that there's a lot of stuff that you could do apart from just making it a plane of, well, we're using this to get from one plane to another. And that's pretty much it. Uh, Time passes really, really slowly. And... You've got the pools, the fixed portals, the way astral items work while you're there, combat in the astral plane. It's just a really fascinating read. And I think if I was going to use this book, um, the astral plane portion would be one of the areas that I'd draw a lot from.
2: Okay. Yeah. Well, (laughs) funny you should say that, because my number three involves the Astral Plane as well, at least a bit. One of the rules he puts in there is that magic items, as they travel from the Astral Plane to an Outer Plane, start to lose pluses. And if you have a plus five sword, you go through Astral Plane, it's plus four. You go from to Asgard, plus three. You go from Asgard to Niflheim, plus two. And again, that warms the GMs the DM heart I've got, because that's basically <laughs> one more way to prevent characters from going god hunting. Or at least making it a lot harder. So I liked that idea that magic tends to wane. I mean, if you go back, the pluses come back. I mean it's not permanent. But when you're trying to go hunt up gods on their home ground, you've got even more issues. And it's kind of unfortunate they felt the need to do that. But of course, we all know those D&D players, none of us were that way, of course. But, you know,
1: those. Well, right. You're not going to take your plus 10 Hackmaster to uh, the ninth plane of hell and collect heads with it. Right. Or if you do, it's only going to be plus seven. But yeah, it's going to be a lot harder. So that's my three. Two. Oh, that's me again. Yep. Uh, I have never been good at Maintaining a balance of actually paying attention to what other people are saying <laughs> and while simultaneously preparing what I'm about to say. It's one or the other. And you caught me listening. So I guess that's good, right? Sure. Given the time and budget constraints Jeff was put under, uh, one of the things that at the contemporaneous time would have saved lots of DMs time and trouble were the encounter tables that were in each section. Now, it's a very skinny 128-page book, so the the biggest encounter tables for the ethereal plane, then the astral plane gets a little smaller, and as you go to the elemental planes, that list gets even smaller. But what's super cool about the encounter tables is they're cross-referenced right there on the table where the creature stats are for a book with no... Almost no monster stats. Everything you run into is cited. It's in the monster manual. It's in the monster manual too. It's in the fiend folio. I was looking at the list, and it's like it's, I ran into something that's in the OA book, and I had to stop and think. OA, oh, hey, what is that? Oh, Oriental Adventures, Adventures, of course.
2: Yeah, although it was so a bit, it, uh, it was a little bit for us old schoolers. It referenced legend and lore, not deities and demigods,
1: which was. A minor annoyance. Had to do the conversion in my head. but That, that was a semi ba from the pyramidal plane of bahs. Yep. <laughs> the mega yeah. elemental plane of Ba's. But in, in other words, Jeff Grubb did exactly what you or I would do if, if we were given the task and the time to complete it in. Okay, I can't write this as a half monster manual, but what can I do? I can research all the uh, occurrences of monsters in the other books and index them and sort them by what plane that you'd run into them on. So well done on that. Yeah. All right. Corbett, two.
3: This is more of a thought. I think everything I have is like that. <laughs> but I really think the summoning spells on the elemental plane should be instantaneous or not work at all.
2: Yeah. I, I noticed who casts Find Familiar in the
1: Outer Planes. Isn't that just asking for trouble? Marvin the Mage? Oh. <laughs> Marvin the Mage did it. That's why his familiar is a salamander.
0: <laughs> I-, I will tell you what. Every player who does that is thinking they are going to get a badass familiar that is going to help them kick ass when they get back to the prime material plane.
2: Uh-huh. <sighs> Steve. Whether you think
0: that is true or not is irrelevant. That is the thinking <laughs> behind it.
2: That's not the reality, but that's irrelevant. That's the thought you're
1: saying. That yes. is the thought. Oh, my God. You just made me flash back to years ago when we conned Tim into running a campaign at one of the local game stores. And the first setting he put us in was a desert setting. And he, there was this obnoxious player who killed the campaign within a year, him and his buddy single-handedly. Hey. I'll get to a point. And he shows up at Tim's table and Tim's like, play whatever you want. And he goes, paladin. So, you know, he signaled he was going to be a problem right up front. So we're in the middle of a desert in a fantasy world. Where's my paladin mount? Where's my paladin mount? And Tim's like, what mount are you hoping to summon in the middle of the Gobi Desert? A war camel.
0: (laughs) I want a sand worm.
1: That would be Worm sign. (laughs) We have worm sign. Well, to Liz's point, that's probably what was going through his head. Yeah, I'll get a sandworm. <laughs>
2: probably. Yeah! And then the next location will be in the ocean! Sucks to be you, doesn't it? So, anyway, sorry, Gorbit, go ahead.
3: <laughs> no, just summoning spells and yeah, elemental plane. I don't like how they like, handled
2: summoning spells. Yeah. Then
3: they, they should have either not worked or they should be like, I summon a water elemental. What? I'm right here. You don't have to yell. I'm. What? <laughs> 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 was in the shower.
0: (laughs) Oh, wait. That's this whole plane.
2: (laughs) Give me a towel. (laughs) Summon me a towel. But
3: yeah, the same summoning uh, mounts and summoning everything else should either be like really way too easy. (laughs) Almost scarily easy. Or 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 just not not work.
2: Yeah.
3: But I don't know. Uh, That's nothing. It was just more of a, that seems. A
2: bob, perhaps?
3: Mm, I don't really. Maybe. A real Meh.
1: ambivalent Bob. <laughs> A Peshaw,
0: perhaps?
3: A guffaw maybe. Oh, okay. Okay. All right, Liz.
0: Okay. Uh, my number two, talking about how the outer planes, as well as the astral plane, were much more interesting. One of the things that I really enjoyed reading about was the concept that the very essence of Hades Causes those who spend time in it to succumb to despair and evil despite their best intentions.
2: Yeah, I remember that, talking about Hades and Hela and all them. Yeah. Even the and, jailers, and how, quote unquote.
0: Right. They are both jailers and prisoners of Hades. And it, these individuals may not have started out as being evil bastards, but the fact that they were sentenced to do their job there irrevocably changed them and of course the fact that you know as a player if you're stuck there and you can't get out you're going to have to start making saves before you begin to change in a manner that you may not care for and if you change enough you're trapped and you can't get out unless somebody else from the outside is able to do something magically or whatever to to force you out I thought that was a pretty interesting thing. Um, so, yeah, Hades. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, too much of that. And even the big guy quits and goes and starts a nightclub in Los Angeles.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's like, screw that. <laughs>
1: I'm out of here. Okay. My number two.
2: They discuss something called spell crystals in the Outer planes. You have to have a 19 intelligence to discern them. What they're for, but basically they're crystals that are the far end of contact other plane spells from the prime material, looking for people to talk to. Now, maybe it's just the people I've always gamed with, but if I had characters that I was DMing and they came across spell crystals, I just have this idea- image of a bunch of PCs making crank calls. <laughs> Is it just me or. <laughs> This is Odin! <laughs> yeah, what do you want?
1: <laughs> this is you from the future. Don't go down that corridor. corridor.
3: Yeah, that 19 intelligence is really showing through.
1: <laughs> what corridor?
2: Any corridor! Well, just because you're intelligent doesn't mean you're wise.
1: <laughs> you're totally right. Enterprising players would turn that into 1- 800 service. Send yeah. me 100 gold
2: and I'll tell you
1: what the weather's going to be like.
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh god, now I'm thinking of real genius.
0: <laughs> it is god. <laughs> it is Jesus.
2: <laughs> ah, and on that tragic awkward note, Jim, take us
1: home. Oh, we're all the way to number 1. Okay, so my number 1 my, to the extent that we've trash talked this book, it should be on every collector's shelf. This Manual of Planes was the, you know, was was the Twilight of First Edition AD&D and it belongs up there on your shelf of First edition ADD core books. Your collection is not complete without it. And unlike many of those books that you might want to go back and collect, I mean, they're on eBay for anywhere from 15 to 20 to 30 bucks. You, If your game store doesn't still have a copy on the collector's shelf, you can go get it. It's worth having, in my humble opinion.
2: And the PDF is on D&D classics.
1: Oh, good catch.
2: Okay. Uh, there,
1: there, are, there are all kinds of nuggets in here you can steal and use today. Yeah.
2: I mean, just because overall, we, we as you may have noticed, there are points we all kind of think, that's a good thing. That's a cool thing. So, speaking of which, Corbett, what's a cool thing?
3: I don't know if it's a cool thing, but I was I was kind of surprised there wasn't... You know, I feel like I'm picking on everything that wasn't there. That's
2: yeah, not you, very nice. Yeah, you're being me. What What's going on with this? If we could see you, would you have a mustache, goatee, and a sash?
0: We know he has a mustache.
1: I don't have a stash. <laughs> oh,
2: goatee and a. Sash. And you
0: used to have yeah. a mustache.
1: I still do. If you're okay. asking, do we live in the mirror universe? Corbin and I both say, of course we do, because we've got the beards. <laughs> Good point. Good point.
0: I think their mirror universe counterparts would be clean shaven. <laughs>
3: anyway, well, speaking of that, they use this as a trope in a lot of other genres of trapping people in other dimensions. I mean,
2: other than. Yeah, a lot of curses.
3: Yeah, they, they don't specifically like, I mean, I was referencing um, in my notes, I have the Negative Zone for Superman, the Eighth Dimension for yes. Buckaroo eye Jimmy the
0: Dimmy Plane of Imprisonment. As soon as Mike read that to me, I said, that's the Phantom Zone. And I be like, <laughs>
2: oh my God, you're right.
3: <laughs> but they don't, I didn't feel like they spent a lot of time talking about that. And it seems like if you have some really bad guys on your world, what are you going to do? Stuff them in a bad universe. All right, we're done with that. dr strange and every villain he's fought
2: yeah it it was weird (laughs) i thought that even the demi and paraplanes bah, elemental planes (laughs) which were dumb got more coverage than a lot of the outer planes i mean some of the outer planes only had like a paragraph and then you're moving on Granted, there was a lot of them, but still. This is
3: also presuming that you're a character that's high enough level that can travel between the planes, so you're going to be a pretty high level and you're fighting really bad things back in your worlds. You're going to other worlds to get things to help you fight in your world.
2: Or you're bored with your world and want to go find other Other worlds to kill (laughs) and check their spleens for emeralds, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it is, I guess they assumed that you know, since the astral plane and the outer planes are for the even higher level stuff, the the elemental planes and the ethereal plane were more, and positive and negative were more important to cover.
3: Yeah, be, I suppose
2: because that was more likely what you'd encounter, maybe, or they ran out
1: of time.
3: Well, it did sound like there was a very shortness amount of time from from Jim's weather report.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, no, that's th- those are fair comments because falling at the end of first edition, this is a transitional work. Early D D when I start I think we all started around seventy nine, didn't we all start we were different ages, but we all started about the same time and, and that version eighty. Of D&D, yeah. that's the genius of Dungeon Crawl classics is it goes back to that ethos we had in the beginning where you don't have to be name level to start traveling the planes. You can be fifth level in the middle of a uh, demon web of the And die horribly. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and go to another plane. And this is in the middle where okay, now we're starting to codify things and you probably should know your have your uh, shit together before you start jaunting off to hell. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, is that your coverage, Corbett? Yeah, totally. All right, Liz.
0: Okay. Number one. <sighs> I don't know if this is actually there or not, but it was a similarity that I saw when I was reading through this. My brain kept insisting on making connections between the planes in this book, and the gods of the Cthulhu mythos. Thinking about how Durleth attempted to connect the deities of the mythos to the four elements, air, earth, fire, and water. And then you've got the inner planes with the elemental planes, your primary forces, as well as positive and negative energy. The outer planes, where some of the gods live, such as and i thought of the outer gods of cthulhu as, the outer gods are extreme yeah. yeah they are extremely powerful and alien unable to be understood by humans and then i made the connection to the plane of concordant opposition for that so dude that's
1: a deep cut yeah. i
0: don't yeah i have no idea if that was even in jeff grubb's mind at all when doing this, but those were the connections I made as I was going through the book, and I kept thinking of Cthulhu.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, the connections with Cthulhu and Conan are pretty deep written, so I think it's fair to say that that would carry over into DD regardless. So, yeah, definitely on the right track.
2: God knows Gygax read Lovecraft. I mean, does God know it's that? It's an
1: appendix in. He does, <laughs> Liz. I think you're right, and I mean, you know, like told me on the, the listeners the phone to the podcast all just sat up in their chairs and went, "Wait a minute!" Yeah, it's a holy crap moment because you're like going, yeah. "Liz is
3: smart
0: <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> or she's or she's totally full of shit," and <laughs> and people are gonna write in going, "What the hell? That's not there at all." <laughs>
3: This is completely a fabrication. It's an exact parable of Sesame Street. You can see that everything is set up around Oscar as the focus. Anyway, go ahead.
2: <laughs> Liz, us getting emails because of comments we made on product on the show?
0: You are totally wrong. <laughs> well, hey, it's not, like, it's not like this is a gazetteer or anything. Geez.
3: <laughs> not yet. Those are important. Come on, though. <laughs> Hang on a minute.
1: Corbett, Sesame Street. <laughs>
0: Liz performs this Herculean lifting
1: day. of the bar for the whole podcast, and you just grabbed it and threw it right back to the floor.
2: Twilight day, eating our souls
0: away.
2: <laughs> yeah, this works. <This> <laughs> if, it,
0: if it's going to be a children's TV show at all, it's clearly The Electric Company. That's <laughs> Come on.
2: How so very dare you?
1: Anyway, Ouch! <laughs> I've still got, oh
2: God, I got so many I've got left I'm over. with Liz.
1: Electric Company had Spider-Man. <laughs> and Morgan Freeman for crying oh, out. Come yeah.
2: on. Yeah. Uh, my number one, which is a pity, because I got like eight or nine I never touched on. Oh, well. I have to cover this one, though, because I promised. Number one, they note in Limbo that you can cre- those with sufficient wills can create what amounts to Shudder. Demi-planes of reality as long as their will holds it together.
0: Oh yeah, they have to keep their concentration to hold the, the reality in place.
2: I immediately thought back to the three doctors and Omega in the antimatter universe. Because that was the exact same thing. He had to pull the doctor there to basically hold Will together so that he could let go of the reality and then come back to our world because if he let go of the reality in order to come back he would be destroyed before he had a chance to make the transition. Because it was his will holding everything together. And that was the first thing that I thought of when I read that. And that was what, 76? 77? No wait, it was the Seventy three because it was the tenth anniversary.
1: I love how you and Liz saved your super potent deep cuts for the last. So Corbett <laughs> and I are just sitting around. You know, I'm I'm like, go buy it on eBay because I say so. And Corbett's like, yeah, just like Sesame Street.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think we're waiting to see if you guys cover it, and
2: if y'all don't hit it, then we're like, okay, we'll we'll hit it at the end. At least that's what I I was thinking, Liz.
0: Well, I I was deliberately saving my my Cthulhu comparison for the end if I said it at the beginning everything else I had to say for the rest of the show would have sounded really trite and and not thought of at all
3: <laughs> well and Jim you saved all your smart stuff way at the beginning because you just went and talked to the guy who was there <laughs> good
1: point good point. point <laughs> three doctors and omega that's super well done no it's awesome <laughs> Totally awesome. Well, I got to get my. Dip- it, but in, in the warm up, you're just like, I'm going to make a Doctor Who reference. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Aha.
2: And it was appropriate, too. You weren't expecting that, <laughs> were you?
0: <laughs> we never expect appropriateness <laughs> from mic.
2: Okay, fair cop. Well, let's go see what makes saves and what doesn't.
0: What makes a save and what is going to take half?
2: Now I can't get Sesame Street out of my
1: head. It's crazy. I, I I can fix that for you by singing the Baby Shark song. No, that's okay. Then then that'll be stuck there.
2: Who's the ugliest one of all with a hundred eyes and ears? S H U B. Be, be careful. N I G G. Get out! U R A T H. Help! Shubja Gara. <laughs> around. Forever will we run away in fear, 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 fear. Come along and sing the song and lose your sanity. S-H-U-B-N-I-G-G, you are idiot. Sorry, we came up with this at a camping event one, one weekend, and it was, became the official theme of our fan club, the Shub Shack. So.
1: <laughs> All I can tell you is the number of monsters I need to be prepared for this was one more than I had. <laughs> <laughs> All
2: right, enough of my singing. Assuming we have any listeners left after that. <laughs> Jim, what makes the save and what takes half?
1: In the Manual of Plains, what makes the save is this is a book that began to codify much of what Gary Gygax had only alluded to in earlier works. And what started here was later much expanded in second and especially third and fifth edition. There's there's fifth edition material that still references what Jeff put together in this book. That's what makes the save. Uh, What doesn't make the save is this poor book just doesn't do what it says on the tin. It's uh, It's not the manual of the planes. It's the brochure of the planes.
3: <laughs> okay. The quick travel guide. <laughs> Corbett? I think it's a neat idea. I think it, as far as makes a save, I think it's a neat idea. I, I, I'm betting by, by Jim's description, it sounds like Gary had a neat idea, wrote it all down, and then it got set on fire, and somebody went, okay, maybe it's this? <laughs> so that's, the. I guess, the good-bad thing. But the bad-bad thing is it. It really has unneeded mathematics that bug me. I think the whole transposing time, like, oh, this is one-tenth of the time when you spend there, which is one-hundredth of the time from when you go there. And if you go one there to there to there there. you carry
2: the one and move the double. Yeah, it's
3: like, can't you just kind of fiat that and say, oh, it's only been a day. What? She's been dead for 50 (laughs) years. That sort of stuff. Because it's... That's that's drama. That's all you want to throw in there for, like. Oh. So, Corbett
1: hates time travel. <laughs> that's what I heard.
3: <laughs> I I love time travel, but it's it's um it's a story driven thing. It doesn't matter if you came back and your cheese sandwich isn't good anymore. It's it's more if you come back and they're all dead. <laughs> no, it's ruled by apes. <laughs> that's the point.
0: So you like time travel. You don't like having to do the math for it.
3: Yes, okay. I like no, mathless likes, time travel. He likes,
0: I, I time, behind likes you.
2: time travel, he doesn't like telling time.
3: <laughs> Good point. Those hands are confusing.
0: I'm totally with you on that.
2: Especially on Mickey. Okay. <laughs> Liz?
0: All right, what makes the save? I feel like, and this is you know, kind of similar to what Corbett's saying, although not totally about time travel. When... <laughs> When not descending into the minutiae of what spells do what in the individual planes, how time passes, what classes can do what, and what classes have their abilities, when not getting down into all of that, I think Jeff does an excellent job of giving you a good feel for the various planes, particularly the outer planes, where I think he really got to shine in his descriptions. Some of them weren't as long as you might have wanted them to be, but there were an awful lot of outer planes. And I kind of get the impression that he had gotten to a point where I don't have enough page count to go into the detail that I'd like to on everything. So
2: I'm just going to shotgun them all.
0: Right. I think, in, and with the outer planes, you know, I got a real sense of the various possibilities for adventure hooks and quest goals with those. And they really, they sparked my imagination in a way that the crunchier entries earlier in the book that seemed to focus more on tables and charts and rules and stuff really could not. When Jeff got to just talk about the planes as opposed to codify stuff, I think he did a really excellent job in doing that. What doesn't make the save, in the foreword, he compares the known planes of existence in AD&D to a closet overstuffed with miscellaneous odds and ends that don't necessarily go together. And that his job was to try to bring some kind of unifying sense to it all. I think it's a really good comparison. And while he does an admirable job of trying to create order out of chaos, in my opinion, there was just so much chaos that in the end, it was an impossible job for him. Despite everything, it still kind of winds up being a hot mess of a book with some really some true gems scattered throughout it. In the special thanks to section, he cites to Mike Dobson for telling me to avoid bogging down too much in the logic of the planes and to stress their sense of wonder and magic. I'm not sure he fully succeeded in following that advice. I'm also not sure that he could. I mean, well he'd been given a big bag of cats and was told to make them all play well with one another. And so in some instances he had to go overboard on the logic and that kind of the, the wonder and the magic wound up suffering when he had to do that. Yeah.
1: Tonight's episode of safer half is being brought to you by the discordant plane of opposition. (laughs) And the letter J. (laughs) And
0: a bag of cats.
2: (laughs) Let's also remember where gaming was at this time, 87. I've noticed role-playing games tend to go in phases of rules light and story, rules crunch. And this was a time when rules were beginning to go down the complexity route. I mean, just in another year or so, Gygax's Dangerous Journeys comes out. And that is complicated. AD&D was becoming more... True story. Yes? He was agreeing with you. Oh, I, I was agreeing I with you. You were saying, you <laughs> shocking. I know. I thought you were saying true story. And then here comes the story. So <laughs> <laughs>
0: true story. This, this is the story. Okay.
2: Yeah. So I think that that also played into it. You know, he, in in the amount of detail he was giving, but sorry, Liz, I was just agreeing with you. So
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty much done.
2: And Jim w- thus was vicariously agreeing with you. Oh, always! I know which side my podcast is on. Mmm, <laughs> <laughs> hot buttery podcast. Mm. Okay, my makes the save. One thing I loved about this is when I got to the end, before the appendices, is there was an afterwards section that essentially said for the Manual of the planes what the afterword in the DM's Guide said, which was, ignore all of this if you want. Change anything you want. You want there to be 14 paradises? Do you want there to be, you know, 12 hells? Go ahead. Any of this is modifiable. And, you know, I still salute that adherence to that idea that, The game master and the players are, in the end, what make the game. I salute him for sticking that in to something that was otherwise rather complex, even with the the brevity of treatment it gave.
0: Although I can't help but think, it's like, you know, you can ignore all of this. Of course, then you would have spent $14.95 for nothing, but hey, it's your (laughs) call!
2: But let's face it, you're a gamer. This is hardly the first time you've done that. (laughs)
3: <laughs> well i thought your comment was gonna be what i really liked about the book is when i got to the end i didn't have to <laughs> read it anymore
2: and it was over so i was done a very reasonable assumption considering it's me but no <laughs> but you yes quite reasonable to assume what takes half and d manual of the planes the rule book that goes crunch <laughs> too much crunch too much detail about how combat and spells are modified
1: on e- every different plane, almost. It just Don't you want to sit and have to get a calculator out to figure out how your weapons and armor still work on the ethereal plane? <laughs> no! I do not! I don't want to know!
2: I mean, yeah, obviously a wall of stone is going to be better on the elemental plane of, of Earth than it is in the elemental plane of air. But I don't need specific details on how that spell works. Just give me some guidelines.
3: My bar of soap is far more effective on the elemental plane of water.
2: Than in the elemental (laughs) plane of fire. Why is that? I don't know. Science. Wait, there's no science. It's only magic. (laughs) Oh, wait, it's a magical dimension, not science. I'll try magic science.
1: Mayansk. (sighs) Oh, you're right. Because there's, you know, I'm I'm the age I am. I take stuff for granted. I, you know, can you imagine a brand a five E player deciding they're going to run an AD D campaign, opening this up and going, "Oh, I thought Thaco was complicated. Now we're on the ethereal plane. Holy crap!" Yeah, <laughs> and it, it just, ah, oh, I do 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 not like
2: do do not like the crunch. And at at the time, maybe it's my persnickety nature, but around the late '80s, as games were becoming more complex, I was actually lightening up already in my rules. Because it's like, you know, I'm tired of, you know, no, no, not weapon versus AC. No. You see,
0: I never ever liked math. So I was never for having to calculate anything.
2: (laughs) In junior high and early high school, there was that era of you have to play it right that we all had our mindsets on. Fortunately, HL was able to help me out of the worst of that. But even so, you know, as a kid, I always felt like I had to play it by correctly, especially with
1: rules lawyers that made my DMing difficult. I have a good question for you and and, and everybody in general. So I've always thought of it as when I was really young and first learning to play, you couldn't make it crunchy enough for me. I adored Champions First Edition when it came out for that specific reason. And then over time, I started getting uh, where I wanted more rules, light, and less crunch. Do you think that was a process of getting older, or do you think that was a process of becoming a more experienced RPGer?
2: I think it's a combination of the two. I think as you get older, you get more confident in yourself, especially if you're running the games and you're less concerned. Because with me, at least part of my obsession with the crunch was, so I would not be caught out by a certain rules lawyer who shall remain nameless. Ben well, we'll, no not Ben it wasn't Ben we'll call him I thought I had that one we'll call him <laughs> Todd yes let's call him Todd he What's was his real his name Todd that's why we're calling him <laughs> is it Todd. Ben Oh, ask Ben about about Todd sometimes. He'll, he'll tell you. Oh, boy.
1: You just, I mean, what you just said caused a whole new wave of thoughts for me because now I'm thinking did I like Crunch at that age because it proved how smart I was? And then I started gaming and figured out everybody in gaming has got a Mensa IQ. Or at least the imagination thereof. Yeah.
3: As, when I was younger, I did worry about the nuance. But as I got older, it's okay. You know what? I can take this back to Star Trek and make it really easy. Everybody complains about the fact there's no toilet on Star Trek. Like, do you really worry about them going to take a dump? No, I, you want I them know. to go fight the Romulans, the Klingons, or whatever. You want them to deal with a problem. Plus you don't need a You don't need a toilet. <laughs> I was just thinking, you've got
2: rec- replicators and transporters. Why, why go through all that messiness? Just gone.
3: Yeah, that, that even goes back to my my whole point about the, the moving, moving from one place to another place. You don't even need to explain that. You, you're Now you're here. Now you're there. You got it. Yeah, um, I don't need to hear but if you, four and a half hours of how we got there. Yeah,
0: that was the whole point of the transporter in Star Trek anyway. Let's get them <laughs> yeah. down to where the adventure is immediately. And then let's go.
2: <laughs> yeah, the guys on the Grognard files were talking about Blake 7. And I think they had a teleporter too. And I think it was the exact same thing. You ever notice that the transporter never had a problem getting them down to the planet or to the ship into trouble? It was always a <laughs> trouble getting them back. That's
1: a good point. But
2: getting them there <laughs> never, ha- never had a problem.
1: I, I feel like I took us off on a wild tangent when all I meant to express was you really made me think. <laughs> my,
2: thanks. <laughs> well, oh, you're welcome. It's something I've thought about in the past, and I do think it was a combination of things. And maybe just as kids, our brains are more flexible. I don't know. Now I'm just old and curmudgeon and shot at clouds. But we need to end this show. <laughs> so this has been the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons first edition Manual of the Planes, or at least a, a
1: section of it. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we urge you to look at it and decide for yourself. And I'd like a huge shout-out thank you to Steve Marsh for putting up with all my goofy questions. Yes, He's super cool. Ask anyone. Gotta
2: have him on the show sometime. We'll have to figure out something to talk about just so we can have him here.
3: Oh, and actually, I do want to say uh, thank you to Jeff Grubb for making it, because I know it was a paycheck for him at one point,
2: and he made a lot of other really good stuff. Yeah, and I think where this falls apart, I'm not sure can necessarily all be laid at his feet. I think it was just the project that he was given.
1: Well, that was literally the first thing Steve told me. was like, it wasn't his fault. You, you, he was given no, almost no budget. That's why there's so little art in it and six weeks to bang it out or whatever.
2: As a final note, I'll just point out Dragonlance Crin had 128 pages. Greyhawk had 128 pages. This is the rest of reality. With 128 pages, <laughs> <laughs> I think that that kind of <laughs> clarifies perfect. things right there, you know. And here's everything else.
1: Let's all concentrate, be quiet, and let Mike end the podcast. Oh, sorry.
2: Say <laughs> <laughs> good night, everybody. We can do it. Good night.
1: Good go. night, rest of the universe.
2: Go weasels,
0: go. <laughs> See ya.
2: <laughs> Giant elemental Briar. <laughs>
1: of the Mud Puppy Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. The Save for Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs, living or dead, is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save for Half.
3: 68 in